You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors, and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. I'll just take it from the top. So I just wondered if to start, if you could both tell us uh, a brief recap of your careers, some of the things that you have been up to. Zachary? So I've been an Auschwitz analyst for going on 20 years now. Uh, I joined the Army shortly after the September 11th attacks in 2001. Uh, I served uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan um, as an intelligence analyst, both at the, at the tactical and the operational level of the infantry battalion and the brigade. Um, I also served as an instructor teaching new intelligence officers after those combat deployments um, for a couple of years. And then I left the Army in 2012, uh, and since then I've served as both a civil servant in the Defense Department uh, and as a contractor consultant for the Defense Department, Defense Intelligence Officer. Uh, most recently, I was an intelligence advisor with the Strategic Capabilities Office, uh, which is within the Office of the Secretary of Defense. It's focused on long-term competition with Russia and China. And then uh, I left there this summer, and currently I'm an independent researcher and author, and I'm sort of just thinking and writing about the challenges the U.S. faces in a changing world and some of the problems I think we need to fix to make uh, not only the intelligence community, but our national security apparatus in general more fit for a new era of competition. Thank you. So I was with the intelligence community for 13 years before joining the RAND Corporation four years ago. And I was a little unique in that I served in multiple intelligence agencies. Most of my career was with the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, where I was a senior Iran analyst. Um, but I also worked directly for the military special forces community on counterterrorism issues, uh, served overseas for three deployments, and spent a significant amount of that time embedded within the CIA. I've also worked on intelligence issues related to homeland security. And my last position before joining RAND was as the deputy and acting national intelligence officer for Iran at the Office of Director of National Intelligence at the National Intelligence Council. And I was there through the entirety of the nuclear negotiations, including serving as the acting NIO for the final negotiation of the comprehensive nuclear deal and seeing it through its congressional confirmation. Um, at RAND, I serve as a senior policy researcher. I work on Iran, counterterrorism, and ideologically motivated violence broadly, and intelligence tradecraft issues. So one of the things that I want to explore today is the future of intelligence. So I know that you, Zachary, you have said that intelligence is at a watershed moment. What is that watershed moment? And could you describe it a little bit more for us, please? Yeah, happy to. Uh, I, I would say I hope we're at a watershed moment because 
you know, I, I'm certainly not the only one to say that the IC is at a decisive point. I mean, that's sort of old hat at this point. There's a lot of people thinking and speaking about that. Um, I think the fact is that the world has changed since the IC was established back in 1947. Uh, and we're realizing now that, you know, we're not, not absolutely fit to meet the new challenges of this new era. Uh, it was designed to meet the challenges of the Cold War. So, you know, the world the IC was created for was slower paced. You know, it operated at the speed of the carbon copy, the ambassador's cable. Uh, it was less connected overall. It was easier for us to divide things into topics and regions and break them down analytically. And in that world, you know, it was a lot easier to collect information from specific people, usually societal elites who had inside information about what the adversary was doing, particularly the, the Soviet Union at that time. And the principal challenge of policymakers back then was a lack of information. So the IC was created to solve that problem. But you know, you compare that to today, you know, everything is accelerated. You know, the speed of relevance can be measured in minutes, if not seconds, in the digital realm. Um, instead of states that are you know clearly demarcated with borders and being able to be broken down into these regions and functions, we have sort of this overlapping world of influence, you know, webs of power that run over, under, and through states that connect individuals from all over the world. And then, of course, instead of squaring off against, you know, this monolithic Soviet Union, we have a wide array of greater and lesser threats. And some of them are very conventional. Others are, are quite new. Uh, some of them operate out in the open. And um, it's also, also the fact that instead of looking for information now, policymakers are practically drowning in it. And you know the the IC is there giving them more information, but in, in a lot of ways that is adding to the confusion, uh, rather than helping them see the world with more clarity and making better decisions. So I I would agree to, with Zachary's points. I mean I think how I frame the the challenge for the IC is you know, what is the core purpose and function of the intelligence community. I mean it is here to serve to protect the American people from threats to U.S. national security. But what are the current threats to U.S. national security? Um, as Zachary was saying, 50 years ago, that picture was pretty, pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Um, you know, our threats were the Soviet Union. The objective was to win a Cold War without it becoming a hot war. Um, the threats from the Soviet Union could manifest in a number of ways and throughout the globe, but the origin and reason for those threats was the same. And also secrecy was essential. The Soviet Union was actively trying to deceive and mask their actions. So an intelligence apparatus that could fully discover, collect, compile, and analyze information about that threat was also essential. Um, and while we still do face threats from ideological and, and military competitors like Russia and China, um, that in my mind is not the greatest threat to the security of the American people today. So let's think about 2020. Um, you know, COVID-19 has killed at least a quarter million Americans, um, you know, three times more than all of our other military conflicts since World War II combined. The pandemic has exposed the brittleness of some parts of the U.S. economy, such as our supply chain dependence. Foreign influence campaigns are exacerbating the divisions in American society. They're weakening democratic institutions. The last four years have revealed that the American governing system is less resilient to authoritarianism than I think many of us would have hoped. Um, and climate change is going to affect our, our food supply, um, the habitability of some parts of our country, and, and many more things. So those are our core threats. To what extent is it the intelligence community's job to respond to those threats? And if it is the IC's job, um, it's probably less because of the community's ability to discover and collect secrets. So Zachary was saying information is now quite accessible. It's probably more because of how the intelligence community is capable of analyzing and presenting information and the way they might be able to do that differently than other sources feeding information to policymakers. I think COVID-19 is a really good way to try to make this somewhat abstract debate more tangible. Can we like focus in on, on COVID-19, on the pandemic? So, you know, it's like, it's like Heather uh, was alluding to. I think that, you know, the IC was created in this world where we primarily were focused on threats. 
Uh, and don't get me wrong, and, and I don't think either of us would say there aren't threats anymore. There absolutely are. I mean, in fact, for the first time in our history, we're facing a, a true competitor that's a peer in almost every way in the form of, of the People's Republic of China. Um, but what we're not as good at, I think, is looking at risks. And it's that sort of structural societal risk um, that the IC is not as good at. And again, don't get me wrong, there are some very good you know, medical intelligence components of the IC, particularly within the Defense Intelligence Agency and elsewhere. And they did their job and they, they made warnings and presented it to, um, to the White House as they should have done. And we can argue about, you know, did they warn back in February or did they warn back in November? Look, the IC has been warning about the threat of a pandemic for, you know, 20 or 30 years now. Uh, we've known this was going to happen, but one of the problems we have in, and this isn't just an intelligence community thing, this is a, um, this is a United States government in general kind of thing. You know, we're not good at looking at long-term sort of gray rhino style of problems that are coming our way, like climate change is another great example that we know these are going to be challenges at some point, but you know whether it's because of the shortness of our political cycles um, or the you know apt, aptness of people to forget uh, events that aren't right in front of them, we tend to sort of sort of forget about it until it's facing us. And what happened in 2020 is it came, it's here, it's today, and we weren't as well prepared for it as we should be. And in some ways, you know, no matter how much the IC screams about that to policymakers they have to be able to accept it and act on it. And that requires, you know, a partnership uh, with the people who can actually make the policy decisions to make us more, more fit for, for these sort of eventualities. Yeah, so reinforcing the idea that the intelligence community had, had waved this flag, right? So if we look at the Global Trends um, document that the National Intelligence, published, the National Intelligence Council published in, in 2012, and this is a publicly available document, um, there was a list of possible black swan events that could be highly disruptive to the United States. And the first in that list was a severe pandemic. Um, and in fact, I'll read from it. It says an easily transmissible novel respiratory pathogen that kills or, kills or incapacitates more than 1% of its victims is among the most disruptive events possible. Um, so I, that is clearly directly speaking to what we have seen with COVID. The annual threat assessment, which is also a public document that was published in 2019, um, said that we assess that the United States and the world will remain vulnerable to the next flu pandemic or large-scale outbreak of a contagious disease that could lead to massive rates of death and disability, severely affect the world economy, strain international resources, and increase calls on the United States uh, for, for support. So the intelligence community has been pointing out that this is something that is um, a great risk to the United States. But then the question is, I think, where where does the role of the intelligence community stop? Um, so I think what you saw early this year is this response of you know, the intelligence community had alerted um, the president to the fact that this specific uh, disease could be that pandemic. Um, and, and then at some point, I think the attitude of the intelligence community was, it's now the job of your public health officials. To, to respond to this and to speak to how well positioned um, America is um, and you know how how robust are our stockpiles of personal protective equipment uh, or you know how quickly would we be able to mobilize to produce and distribute a vaccine historically those have not been considered questions of the IC and the IC is not currently resourced to answer those sorts of questions so if we want to make it the job of the IC to do those things there are more resources required to do it. There's also a fundamentally different outlook than the IC has historically had, because those are questions about the United States and about America, whereas the IC historically has been thinking in a foreign orientation. Um, so it would also kind of require a shift in their, their mission and authorities to be able to also look at how well the U.S. is positioned to respond to these kinds of threats, you know, what kind of vulnerabilities we, we have. And that's not something we have historically done. Yeah, and if I could just, if I could add on to that, because that's such a great point that, you know, the IC was created to look outward. And there's always been this sort of um, impenetrable barrier, not always impenetrable, but it should be impenetrable, this divide between foreign and domestic. Um, so, you know, in the in the 1970s, we had all these scandals with the, with the FBI and the CIA doing domestic surveillance and that sort of thing. 
uh, and it's called the Year of Intelligence, and that's how we got the Church Committee and the Pike Committee and much, much greater congressional oversight, right? We don't want to repeat those those dark days. Um, but, you know, there it, it is true now that there, the demarcations between, you know, foreign and domestic are not as simple or clear as they as it once was. Um, and, you know, people inside America, there's our competitors are here inside America, you know, foreign adversaries are here. They're launching information attacks against us from within our borders. You know, peep, there is a more permeable border now, you know, regardless of how tough you want to be on border security. The fact is the world is connected digitally in this sort of ether where everyone co-mingles together. And Americans right now, they are, they are under the sort of, um, the th they are part of the threat surface uh, against these foreign adversaries who, who seek to do us harm. You know, the IC was built to look at foreign, and maybe we need to rethink that uh, for the 21st century. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating about the 20th century is looking at the shifting front lines and interstate engagement going from a battlefield where maybe 50,000 soldiers in the 19th century would slug it out, then all of a sudden it becomes total war. Uh, all you know, with the invention of aeroplanes, then all of a sudden the civilians are a part of the conflict. And I think that we see those boundaries continue to change with the information revolution and with computers uh, sitting in our living rooms being part of that that sort of global struggle. What is it we're trying to diagnose? It seems to me that, uh, Zachary, you're more saying that the aircraft carrier needs to be restructured but for heather you're more saying that sure the cold war has been and gone the ic's had to change but we, we should really be focusing more on the threats and on the the risks that are out there would that be a fair characterization and if not help uh help illuminate the point for our listeners heather will speak for herself but i i think there is a there is sort of a distinction between what I would call the restorationists um, who are on one side of the debate and they think they, and, I, and I'll speak for them. I think that um, they probably see, well, the ICs had problems and particularly the last four years have been challenging. Uh, but if we get the right leadership in place and if we you know, focus on the challenges that we need to face, we'll be fine. Uh, and, you know, it'll be tough, but we'll get through it as we always had. And to, to the ICs credit, you know, it is, it reinvented itself practically overnight after 9-11. It turned from, you know, looking at having a decade where it was kind of looking for a mission in the 90s to being laser focused on counterterrorism. Uh, it became the best manhunting enterprise on Earth in the history of, of humanity. Uh, so we can do, the IC can turn and focus on whatever new threats are. I think there's also a school of thought uh, called maybe the reformers who I would, I would put myself in that camp who think that even with the right leadership in place, the system itself is not really up to the changing world. And I think we need to reinvigorate and redesign that system, not necessarily from scratch, but we need to think it, think more about how we do design it and make it fit for purpose for a different area. I mean, we keep talking about how dramatically different the world is, and practically everyone agrees about that. Um, but, you know, why do we think using the same system that was designed for a world that no longer exists is going to get us any further? So, you know, and, and most people will come down sort of in the middle or, or rather than on one side or the other. But, but I do think we need to think very seriously about looking at the whole structure and making it more fit for the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a, a lot of daylight between, you know, where Zachary and I see these challenges going. I mean, I think there is a camp that believes that the IC can just keep doing what it's doing and what it's been doing um, with, you know, some minor changes for modernization. And maybe I'm underplaying those reasonable changes for modernization, you know, so, so thinking about how the intelligence community integrates um, open source and public information, um, you know, thinking about how the intelligence community is using data science and to what extent data scientists are involved in, in intelligence analysis. Um, so it, it can adapt from where it is to, to where it needs to be. And then I think there, um, maybe the competing camp is, well, maybe we really need to look at the drawing board again and, and really think about the structure that we have. And um, I think that, the question at the core is, you know, 
how much do we have to move away from this core model that an intelligence community analyst um, reads things and writes things? And and that is a essentially their job. And maybe they need to read some different things or, um, you know, maybe they need a data scientist to analyze some data and give that to them to read as well. Um, but there are some who, who might really question whether that is, you know, the, the, the model that even works today. Um, and I think for me personally, it's, it's not necessarily a question that the intelligence community can entirely answer for itself. Um, we also need to have this conversation with policymakers about how they are best served um, and what information are they actually going to utilize. Um, and then again, what resources are needed to make sure that that, that can be delivered to, to them. So I think it needs to be an exchange where both sides are kind of at the table rethinking where intelligence is going to go. So, so just a, a quick thought experiment on that point, Heather. Imagine I'm President-elect Biden and I hear about this whip-smart researcher for RAND called Heather Williams uh, who's got some really interesting ideas about the IC. What do we need to do, Heather? T t tell me where we go from here. What are some of the things that we need to do? I think the first priority for, for example, the director of national intelligence um, going into the uh, job is, is probably not change, but repair, you know, primarily to restore the code of ethics that has been articulated by the office of director of national intelligence for the intelligence community to the position of the director of national intelligence. Um, you know, IC professionals need to see that their top leader represents the same code of professional ethics that is asked of them, um, and primarily that being that the mission is to serve the American people, not a president, not a partisan agenda, and to speak truth to, to power, um, even if it's a truth our, our leaders might not want to hear. Um, but but I think we, uh, we have a better sense now of what this challenge is. Uh, you know, maybe the intelligence community should have, but I don't know if they could have really seen this coming 20 years ago. But I think now there is a good understanding of what the challenges are um, and just less of a clear way forward about what the solution is. So I wouldn't presume that we already know what needs to change or what needs to be done to fix the problem. I think we really need to think through the problem uh, a little bit more. I would tell the president-elect that the, the challenge that we face is, is bigger than any single uh, person you put in a position of authority. Uh, it's bigger than, it's bigger than, bigger than any single administration, to be honest. Um, and, you know, I think to Heather's point, you know, the first step is putting people in positions of leadership, like the newly named director of national intelligence, who can first sort of steady the ship, uh, reassure the workforce. You know, let's be clear, the, the IC workforce is dedicated, patriotic, largely apolitical, you know, they want to do their jobs and they're some of the best in the world at doing it. But they really have been. And I talked to, you know, colleagues who are still in the IC almost daily um, who have been sort of, you know, just beat down uh, year after year now. And they feel like, you know, their work is not listened to. What they're doing is not, doesn't have the value that it used to have. Uh, and there's been a lot of them that have left for the private sector because of that. So I think that, you know, steadying the workforce is sort of the first, you know, first do no harm, right? So to get on board, reassure the workforce, let everybody know that your work is important, which it is, you know, having a, an intelligence apparatus is crucial for this country. I think actually more crucial now than it was even during the Cold War, uh, because we face such unprecedented challenges that are not only, you know, foreign, but also here systemically all around us every day in the form of climate change and you know, politicization and all these issues that we face. So that's that's number one. Uh, number two is I think is, you know, maybe throw some money at Rand. We do need to do some research. You know, we need to have, we need to involve both houses of Congress. We need to have, you know, um, panels, bipartisan commissions, look at what is it we want the intelligence community to do? What are the challenges we need to face in the over the next century? Um, and, you know, but that's also, we've done that tons of times before. I mean, the, you know, the road to intelligence community reform is paved with, you know, discarded reports and studies that have never gone anywhere. But, you know, we never really did that sort of wholesale examination that Heather mentioned about what is it we want to do? What are the functions? 
How do we sort of uh, demarcate between foreign and domestic? We have 17 agencies now that are all doing, you know, some version of largely the same thing. There's a lot of redundancy in there. And each of them sort of focuses on their own particular brand and customer base of intelligence. You know, some serve, you know, the military, some serve the president, specifically CIA serves the, the White House and the NSC. Um, these are almost like, you know, divisions within a, a multi-divisional corporation that has its own brands that they manage, that they manage, I'm sorry. Uh, and they have to serve their individual customers. But we've never really done a wholesale, you know, thinking through of a rationally designed intelligence community, just because that's, how, that's not how policy gets made in this country. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Why is it not a self-correcting system as much as it should be? Why does it take something like 9-11 or something like the coronavirus for this type of change to, to come about? I mean, why is it hard? Bureaucracy? You know, you're, you're talking about a very large institution. Um, and the intelligence community, in many ways, you know, you, you wouldn't want it to be capable of changing dramatically and rapidly because that also introduces new security threats, right? I mean, you know, we spend a long time making sure that the people who work inside the intelligence community are trustworthy. Um, and then uh, a good goal for the IC is never let them go so that they never, you know, get out with these secrets that they are still legally obligated to protect, um, you know, but to kind of keep that community uh, as small and, and trustworthy as possible. And so that, I think, creates a lot of challenges in how adaptable your people are and how easy it is to switch out a workforce that you have for a workforce that you might need. Um, I think that is a big barrier and, and I think a reason why we should put more time and energy into training and retraining and education of intelligence community members than, than we currently do. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a really big ship, so you can't just turn it uh, turn it on a dime. Um, and and I think there there are a lot of really wonderful studies and a lot of um, incredibly intelligent people thinking about this problem. But I still often find a lot of those um, studies are done a little bit on the the margins. You know, they might raise interesting questions or really challenge the way the system is structured. But that doesn't mean that it is going through kind of a systematic study of, well, okay, if that's where we think we need to be, how do we get there? And what is the roadmap to get from where we are to where it is that we think we need to be to do what we think needs to be done? Are, are, are some of the structural shifts or changes in culture that need to take place so that we can, so that we can get from A to B? So that's a great question. I think that, you know, first of all, I would I agree with Heather completely. I think that one of the reasons that reform is so hard is because, you know, power is purposefully disaggregated in this country, you know, to where you have, like I said, 17 agencies in the IC, including the ODNI. You have uh, different oversight committees in Congress that guard their own control and oversight over those agencies uh, as, rightly, as rightfully they should. Um, and, you know, everybody thinks they're doing the right thing and everybody believes their mission is the most important and they believe in that mission and want to do it well. Um, and then, you know, going back to the creation of the ODI, I mean, one of the one of the um, sort of uh, compromises they made in that legislation was they created the ODI, but they didn't give it the authorities that it needed to sort of really control the IC. So it's not a, the IC is less of a federation and more of a confederation because there is no real centralized authority. I mean, if the, if the director of national intelligence had hiring and firing authority over agency heads, that would allow a lot more integration. Uh, but, you know, like I said, that's not the way it works right now. So what we could do, I think, to make some, some of the changes I think are adaptive and what we need 
I mean, really, it, there's a lot of things. In fact, uh, one of them would be moving from a system of hierarchy to one of more of a networked sort of organic design. I, I have a theory in my mind where I would like to see an IC that's designed around, you know, small disaggregated teams, multifunctional teams that support individual clients or offices of policymakers. Uh, instead of having sort of a line block chart of, you know, analysts who write papers based on collection and it goes up a flow chart through the chain of command and eventually gets reviewed and published, I would like to see sort of individual analysts, methodologists, data scientists, all collaborating together in sort of multifunctional teams to support, um, if not individuals, because that would require a whole lot of people, but individual offices or policymaking positions. And in fact, I think the IT exists today where if you were to redesign a system, you could support individual policymakers and action officers and program managers across the government through you know, digital platforms that they could customize. You could have them be able to tailor the sort of intelligence production they wanna see, uh, ask questions of the analysts and collectors who are out there. It's, and it's, that's one of the things I think that we really need to work on because not only um, currently, but the next generation of policymakers who is growing up now, the you know, Gen Z, they expect you know, on-demand uh, instant access to the answers they want. They want to be able to speak to the person who's creating this material for them. They want to collaborate with them and do co-creation, value-added, all these sort of management buzzwords that are, that are sort of out there and, and wonky, but that is real. That's how, that's how social media works today, and that's how workplaces work today in the private sector. If you look at things like Scrum and Agile and all these other sort of, uh, you know, we think of them as wonky buzzwords, but that's the generation that's going to be tomorrow's policymakers. And they're not going to put up with going into a basement and logging on through four or five different passwords onto a system to get some piece of intelligence that may be fantastic. It may be the most exquisite piece of collection we have, but it's just not convenient for them. And it's not, it's, they're not able to get access to it in time. So they're going to go onto a website that's going to give them something that's maybe 30 or 40% of the information, but it's easy. And that, that's really the challenge I think we need to think about fixing. Someone like yourself, Zachary, are you, are you like an extreme outlier? Are you like Pluto and there's another few disruptive thinkers, but nobody's really paying you any attention? Or is it more akin to a kind of, uh, you know, factional uh, civil struggle? Does everybody basically agree that wholesale change does need to take place, but everybody just argues over how it gets cashed out? Give, give people that are not, uh, have not been part of the community an understanding of where that debate is at the moment. It's not as factional as the rest of the West, at least not yet. But I, I think that there is a, there is a distinction. It, it, is probably, uh, it is probably generational. Although, you know, I am fortunate enough that I've had many older mentors who have sort of um, molded how I think about these issues and have encouraged me to pursue these research problems. Um, so, you know, and I'm certainly not alone. I mean, I'm, like I said, I, I wouldn't be in this guy. I got to give a shout out to my, one of my mentors is a guy named Josh Kerbell. He is a former chief methodologist at the Defense Intelligence Agency. He was my thesis advisor at the National Intelligence University. Um, and he's been sort of rattling the IC's chains for, you know, 10 years or so now saying this, this is broken and we need to fix it. He's one of them. Um, there's also several, you know, Carmen Medina is one at CIA. She's been talking about this for 20 years. Carmen's great. She, you know, she has said the essential thing that's wrong with the IC is its design. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not unique in saying this at all. There is a, there are a lot of people much more senior than me that have been, you know, arguing for these changes for some time now. Um, I think part of the problem, like I said, is digit is generational because you have sort of an old guard that again, they believe that if we put the right people in charge and if we sort of, you know, attack, you know, change the attack on ourselves a little bit, we'll be able to, you know, meet the challenges head on. Um, but, you know, I think they all agree that there's problems we need to fix. And, you know, I, that's, that's really about all I can say because it's, it's, it is sort of such a nebulous debate at this point, but I do slowly think that the realization is, is accruing uh, that something needs to be done. I think intelligence analysts, they, they generally don't turn off. So those same skills that they bring to their job, they bring to their lives. And, you know, woe be it to our spouses and partners. But how can you get angry at us for just being who we, we are? So I think that um, analysts are, they are reflective. They are questioning. They are critical thinkers. So um, I think many of them um, think about these things and have these concerns about how well positioned the organizations are moving forward. 
uh, at the same time, they are they are good soldiers. They are patriotic workers. They are going to do the job that's asked of them to the best of their ability with the resources you know that they have right now. Um, so you know they might not have the t- time to stop and think about what could be done, what could be in the future, because they do still need to answer the mail in the here and now. And I think that does sometimes limit the bandwidth that some might have to to think about these these issues. So. You do hear a lot of voices, some of the ones Zachary mentioned, and also you know, Joseph Garden, who recently retired from um, the IC and was at the National Intelligence Council and at the Sherman Kemp School, has done writing and thinking on this. Michael Morell has done writing and thinking about this. Me personally, you know, I didn't get to think about any of these issues until I left government. Uh, I left the DOD. I left as a civil servant. I left in 2018 uh, after NIU. Heather is right. You know, analysts, we don't, you know, that's our curse is we do sort of think about these things all the time and you can't really turn your brain off. You know, she mentioned a lot of people, even Sue Gordon herself has, you know, she wrote an article, I think, and may have been in the Hill earlier this summer where she talked about reforming the IC and making it more fit for the 21st century. And, you know, I agree with almost everything she said in that piece. So, you know, once you have time to reflect, you do sort of think, um, how are we going to structure ourselves for the future and how can we how can we do things better than we are now? But people who are in it every day, they're just trying to do their job and get the mission accomplished. To what extent are these mirroring broader shifts within the realm of ideas or within the realm of the social? So, you know, we think about the intellectual shifts in the 20th century, If we look at various fields, if we look at, say, economics, we see a shift from neoclassical economics to behavioral economics. If we look at the physical world, we see a shift from Newtonian mechanics to quantum theory, uh, complexity theory, relativity. So I guess one of the questions that some people would ask is, is this mirroring some of these changes and if so why is it taking so long for this just now to be a debate within the IC so I I spent some time in an international relations department and one of the jokes was that in international relations people always studied problems that sociologists had came across a generation ago and thought that they were novel Um, is there an extent to which the ICE is just catching up on, on debates that have taken place in the past? I think, yeah, I think that's true. I think, um, so, you know, if you look at the, take the intelligence cycle, for example, the intelligence cycle was basically cribbed from, you know, late 19th, early 20th century management theory with uh, scientific management practices and the value chain. Somebody probably in the interwar period, some whether it was a Brit or an American, remembered their business school training and they converted that over to military intelligence. And they said, oh, this is the cycle of how intelligence is produced. Like it was a widget in a factory that we were going to make. Um, and we've had that ever since. You know, it's gone through you know several reforms and it looks a little bit different than it did back in the 1930s, but it's still basically the same. So the IC has always, and government, and this isn't just the IC, it's governments in general, have always sort of cribbed the best practices from the private sector and how we organize, um, you know, corporations or industries or whatever it is. But I think the problem is we sort of stopped in the mid, you know, 1950s, and we haven't caught up with the way the private sector has kept evolving since then to some of these other sort of organizational structures and management philosophies that maybe we need to update to. So, uh, yeah, I think in many sense, you know, the IC, and I'll get one example, and then, uh, then I want to hear what everyone wants to say, is, you know, the CIA recently did a reform uh, a few years ago where they changed into, um, I forget what they're called, like mission centers or something like that. That's basically a, a multi-division, an inform hierarchy. That's something General Motors created in 1935. So that is our most modern organizational structure in the intelligence community and it's based off a hundred year old concept from you know an industrial age uh, company well well don't be misled by the um, CIA's organizational chart because that's always a ploy anyway that's not really how power and influence moves in CIA they're much much less structured than that um, but yeah I think a lot of these problems are, are really not they're not unique to the IC um, you know some of the problems we were talking about earlier of just you know 
parsing information and moving from a paradigm where you're trying to find the information you need to where you're trying to filter to the information you want from all of the disinformation and misinformation that's out there. Um, I think also just a, a world where we used to look at things as simple systems and now understanding that they need to be seen as complex systems. Um, you can see that uh, echoed in many other fields as well. Um, I think another kind of challenge that the that the IC is grappling with that um, kind of speaks to these questions about the importance of narrative is, you know, what what is convincing or what is truth um, and then what is actually going to influence or have an impact on uh, the, the party you're trying to provide that information to. So I think that the, the IC has historically seen that its job is to try to ascertain the truth or as close to the truth as they can find or what they think will likely be the truth and, and present it. And and at that point, their job is done. You know, they've presented it. And then maybe the post 9-11 reforms was, well, you need to present it and show how you got there, show your work a little bit more, and maybe show how you uh, considered and were able to move away or disprove alternative ex explanations. Um, but what I think we've seen in the last few years um, is that may also still not be enough. I mean, maybe it will be for the, the new administration that comes in. I think you're going to have more of a return sort of scientists and lawyers who are maybe more evidence-based thinkers and that's what they want. But um, to the extent to which the IC's audience is also Congress um, and potentially even the American public, um, that's not necessarily the way in which you can uh, convince people of um, what is the truth. Sometimes it does require narrative um, and, and it also it certainly requires understanding narrative and factoring that into your analysis. Uh, one of the the ways that this conversation we're having today came about is from reading Zachary's uh, article in War on the Rocks uh, about the Sherman-Kent debate. So I wondered if either of you could tell us who Sherman-Kent is and what, what length is his shadow, how much is... Uh, how much is he still a powerful force within the IC? So, well, thank you for, for plugging my article, for one. Uh, two, um, you know, I don't think we should exaggerate Sherman Kent's influence. I mean, for one, he's mostly influential among intelligence analysts. And intelligence analysts are, a, you know, a very niche audience. Probably more influential was somebody like, you know, Bill Donovan. Or whatever with the OSS, you know, they created CIA after 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 World War II. Um, but the point of that article was more the fact that the United States was in a position at the end of World War II where everyone sort of agreed on both sides of the political aisle that the world had changed. You know, Europe was destroyed. Uh, the United States was basically the only only competitor that was still solid, and it sort of inherited the mantle of the British Empire, or was at the time, or was starting to inherit that. And then you had these, these these pesky Soviets who were acting up, you know, putting an iron curtain across Europe, and they, we knew they were going to be a problem. So we knew there was going to be a need for a strategic intelligence function, something that the United States had never had before in its history. We never had a systemic strategic intelligence function that directly served you know, the, the office of the president. Um, so, you know, Truman knew that we needed that and basically everybody agreed. So, but they didn't really think a lot about the intelligence function. It was more about combining the army and Navy and creating the defense department. And then we, we eventually got the CIA out of that largely by accident, you know, a couple lines in the national security act of 1947. They didn't really think about it. Um, Sherman Kent was the guy who sort of laid the foundations within that analytic component of CIA, at the, originally at the, the State Department, uh, and at CIA at the time. And basically the paradigm that he created, we all are still living in more or less, was, as Heather said earlier very well, you know, the IC would find the truth, we're going to tell you what the answer is, and then we deliver it up to the policymaker and we expect them to make the right decision with it. I don't think that is an accurate portrayal of how human decision-making works, and it's certainly not an accurate portrayal of how policy gets made in the United States, neither then or, or increasingly now. I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, policymaking in the United States is a messy, emotional, um, very difficult process, 
And particularly, you know, the president is not the only policymaker. The president is certainly the loudest voice in the room in any discussion, but he or she is not the only voice. And, you know, we have a dis disaggregated series of um, disaggregated um, sort of islands of power in this country. You have to get Congress on board. You have to get the agencies of the executive branch on board. I mean, agencies have a lot of things they can do to sort of push against the president, as, as we've seen, you know, in recent history. Um, so president, and so policy gets made, it kind of bubbles up from the bottom. I mean, action officers, program managers, they present options to their principals, to the deputies and to the principals. And then the president eventually sees a series of options and has to make a decision about that. Um, but they need to be involved in that process from the beginning. And if some intelligence guy comes in here at the end of the day and says, oh, no, your policy's all wrong. This is the actually the right answer. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that it's, it's very rarely listened to. And, and I know that uh, Heather's going to have some, some good thoughts on this, so I'll, I'll let her talk. Well, I think in terms of how we do intelligence analysis, you know, Sherman can certainly cast a long shadow, probably so long that we don't always see it anymore. It's just taken for granted. Um, you know, people are influenced by him without realizing that's who they're influenced by, um, both in how analysis is done, um, you know, the importance of analysis being estimative and how you present that, and also in that division between the policymaker and um, the, the analysts. I think where you get this challenge is, you know, intelligence analysts are telling policymakers what they think are you know, is the most likely outcome, whereas policymakers see themselves often as change agents, as capable of changing what that outcome is. So, um, you know, an analogy might be that, you know, if if we were a sailboat, where you know, an intelligence analyst is going to tell you the wind, the tides, the climate, all the things that are going to direct, you know, where that sailboat is likely going to go and end up. Um, and a policymaker is like, well, I'm just going to put a motor on that boat and make it a motorboat and go against, you know, where all of those factors are driving me. So, you know, I, I think, and a policymaker often thinks of themselves as capable of achieving something that is unlikely, that's, that's difficult to achieve. Um, and, I, and I just think that there's that fundamental challenge between, that's the fundamental difference between an intelligence analyst and a policymaker in that way that often also hinders their ability sometimes to communicate effectively with each other. Zachary, uh, I read your master's thesis over the weekend um, and you allude to some of this as a gradual falling away of various certainties. I think one of the certitudes that has come undone is the idea that there can be a unity of method between the natural sciences and the social sciences. Um, but that also calls into question the entire idea of prediction. I just wondered if you had any thoughts just on this idea of prediction. So one, prediction, and two, the relationship between the analyst and the policymaker. So the world is growing more complex. Uh, and a lot of people throw that term around without really knowing what it means. But if you, you know, you dig into the complexity theory, complexity science, you know, a complex system is one where you inherently can't predict what comes out of it, right? The pieces are all, um, you know, in, they're all interacting and emergent behavior comes out of it. And I think the example I used in the thesis was um, uh, the Arab Spring is one. So all these conditions were set for years. You know, di dictators in the Middle East have been oppressing their people for decades. There had been, you know, food shortages before, uh, you know, brutal crackdowns, famines, all these sort of things. But in that particular case, that system had gotten to such a state where the effect of this one guy who happened to protest and set himself on fire sort of was the tipping point. So you couldn't have predicted that, though, because the IC would have said, Hey, look, all these indicators are here. They've been here for a long time. Um, but it's, it, is, it is quite literally impossible to say we know the day, the time, the month that some, some individual is going to act and it's going to cause this chain reaction of events. Now, recognizing that fact is one of the reasons I think that the IC needs to sort of change its, uh, I call it the business model. Uh, instead of trying to predict things for policymakers, we need to help them sort of create adaptive policies that are not only resilient enough to, um, to change in the face of, of, of unforeseen consequences, 
but also able to adapt to emergent threats and crises that kind of come up on, in an unforeseen way. Um, and that requires creativity, imagination, it requires foresight, you know, kind of looking at, and I'll, I'll say this, foresight is different than prediction. You know, there, you know, there's contingent prediction and there's absolute prediction. We can say, these are the things that might happen over the next 15 or 20 years that we should be worried about and be thinking about how we're going to react to them. One of those is, you know, a, an epidemic or a pandemic, sorry. We, uh, we called that 20, 30 years ago, as, as Heather alluded to. That is not an absolute prediction. It's saying that this is likely to happen at some point in the future. Now, the problem with that is in the current paradigm we're in, you know, policymaker looks at that and goes, well, I can't do anything with this. You know, how am I going to prepare for something that might or might not happen, you know, while I'm alive? Um, so that is sort of coming back to your question of a societal change, where we have to sort of engender this sort of recognition more broadly that we're not going to be able to predict every threat that emerges. Uh, we need to build more adaptability and resilience into the system itself to make us more capable of weathering the kind of storms I, I think we're more likely to see as this century unfolds. Yeah, I think we're the intelligence community is very good at strategic warning um, and not good at tactical warning. We're not good at recognizing those tipping points, and um, that that may not be fixable. And so, you know, as saying, maybe the answer is don't try because you won't succeed. Um, but instead, where the intelligence community can provide a lot of value is if this were to be the tipping point. Here's all of the challenges that that could present. You know, here's all the dominoes that are going to get knocked over um, if if that's what this is. Um, you know, the I think that the problem there might be is, you know, how do you you, you can't look at every single possible event and ask if this is the tipping point every single time because then you aren't providing anything new, probably. You know, is this the, you know, the protest that's going to set off the revolution? Okay, but is this the protest that's going to set off the revolution? I mean, your answers are probably not always going to be that different, but you could have a system where you reevaluate these questions on a scheduled or a structured basis where you kind of go back to the drawing board and really think through those key assumptions. I mean, what would the consequences be um, if that event for which the intelligence community has provided strategic warning were to occur now um, and what the impacts are for the United States and for, for U.S. national security and, and foreign policy. Heather, I know that you've thought about this relationship between analysts and policymakers quite a bit. Like, where has it been? Where is it now? And where do you see it going? So I respect that um, role of the intelligence analyst as a, a nonpartisan uh, individual, as someone who has a distance from the policymaker. That's the environment I grew up in, um, in the intelligence community. You know, I, I joined the IC um, shortly after 9-11, um, but after some of the kind of reforms were already started. So it's hard for me to abandon that as my core assumption or my core programming. Um, so it, it's really difficult for me to embrace a different paradigm. Um, but, but I do think one thing I've done a lot more of since leaving um, the IC is to try to understand policymakers more um, and understand the American politic better. Um, I think for many people inside the IC, one great method of not being unduly influenced by politics is don't follow politics that closely. You know, don't follow American politics that closely, and then you don't have to worry about that bias. Um, but the the problem is, is that that means you sometimes don't understand your audience. You know, when you're asked to go to the Hill or when you're speaking to a policymaker, um, because you don't actually appreciate what their core assumptions are and their perspective is. Um, and I, I think one thing I encountered, um, I remember, for example, um, when we were briefing a, uh, a member of Congress um, about the, the makeup of um, an opposition movement and to what extent that opposition movement in the U.S. or in, in the Middle East was um, secular versus Islamist. And, you know, the, the answer we got from the policymakers, well, this is very different than other information that I have gotten. And, you know, that other information that 
had been received was from a group seeking support from the United States. So, you know, they had knowingly represented themselves in a way that policymakers would like the movement to look like, but not necessarily the way the movement really looked. Um, and, and that really made a big impression on me. And I would emphasize that sometimes when interacting with analysts who were hesitant to give policymakers any answers because they knew those answers weren't very precise. Um, and forgetting that you aren't the only person speaking to policymakers. If you don't provide them information without agenda, the only information they're going to get is information with agenda. So even if you have um, doubts and even if you really uh, have and you've appropriately presented why you lack confidence in your assessment, those assessments with weak confidence have value because you are the only person speaking to a policymaker often without some, some agenda behind the information you're presenting. Yeah, can I uh, can I follow up with that because I, I had I just thought of a great uh, I think it's great example of what Heather just said. Uh, you know, I grew up in this paradigm as well. You know, I think we, we probably entered the, the, the business around the same time. And um, one of my last jobs in government was I was a briefer uh, in DOD, and one of my client was a, a three-star general. Um, and I, I went in his office every day and gave him his intelligence update. And my supervisor really did not like uh, how much he sort of, uh, you know, appreciated my briefings. And it was always, I always had to do a pre-briefing with my boss, like what I was going to say, you know, how it was going to go. Here's the analytic line we have, you know, because you don't want to go against the, the analytic line of your shop. Um, so, you know, I'm very cognizant of all those factors. And here I am, you know, in, in, this, in, this, in this officer's office. Um, and he asks me, he says, because, you know, we had developed a relationship. I'd been his briefer for um, a year and a half at that point. And he said, well, Zach, you know, what do you think? And I said, you know, I'm like, oh, no, you know, I'm thinking, well, oh, I can't really, I don't want to give him my opinion. I was like, sir, you know, this is the, you know, the community thinks blah, 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 blah. Uh, or the, you know, the team looking at this problem, this is their judgment. And he goes, no, I asked you, what do you think? And I was, I was very uncomfortable because I had grown up in this sort of Kentian paradigm. Uh, and I also didn't want to make my supervisor angry and go, you know, <laughs> and I said, well, sir, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to color, you know, your, your perception. He goes, and he, he, I'll always remember this. He said, Zach, I've been doing this for 30 years. He goes, you're not the only source of information I have. Uh, I know how to think for myself. I'm asking you for your, your opinion because I value it. I'm not going to do anything based on your opinion. So just tell me what you think. And I said, Roger that, sir. And I, and I gave him my opinion. So, you know, a lot of analysts are very uncomfortable in those kind of situations because that's, we're trained to not do that. Um, but I think more and more, and every, every policymaker I've spoken to, you know, since leaving government and doing interviews and such, they, they crave that. They want the insight that the analysts have because they are often the most expert person on that problem. Uh, that the policymaker has access to. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that uh, analysts make is they just assume that the policymaker is a blank slate, you know, and so they just want to be really careful about putting some real precise, you know, kind of paint on that canvas and not realizing there's just one more layer on top of everything else. I think just to close off, could you tell listeners one book that you're reading at the moment that is influencing your thinking? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm I'm actually reading uh, two books right now. One of them is uh, Jamie Susskind's Future of Politics, which basically talks about you know how all these digital technologies are changing the relationship between citizens and their government around the world. You know, not not just here in the United States, uh, and some of the problems that we're going to face because of that. The other one is I'm rereading a book called Humility is the New Smart. Uh, fantastic book. Highly recommend that one to anyone who hasn't read it yet. And basically the pitch there is in an age where we have intelligent machines that are going to be able to answer any question for us faster than you know anyone else can or have greater recall than any, any analyst anywhere has, the value of the humans in our organization is actually our creativity, our ability to put together the pieces and think about things imaginatively, and our empathy. Uh, having that humility to be wrong in many cases and ask the questions and say, I don't know, uh, maybe an AI is going to help me figure out the answer, but then help decision makers in the company to have that humility as well. So both, both of them are great so far, but I really recommend the, uh, the humility is the new smart. 
So I'm increasingly working on questions of ideological extremism and white supremacy, so I probably wouldn't recommend my reading list to, to most people these days because it's not a fun one. Um, but, in, but in terms of, you know, just I think great books in thinking about these questions um, and thinking about prediction, uh, you know, not, not really original probably for your listeners in this community, but um, Thinking Fast and Slow is such a tremendous read in understanding our own cognitive biases and how we process information. Um, and, and a plug for my, my current home institution, um, Rand's work on truth decay, I think is, is really seminal on understanding disinformation and these trends that we see in society about um, the, the decreasing confidence in um, evidence and, and scientific theory. Thanks ever so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.